Welcome, listeners, to The Change We Seek, a podcast from a prevention perspective. This perspective means we look at things like systems, barriers, protective factors, and risk factors, and always view these issues from a strengths-based perspective. The podcast is sponsored by the West Virginia Collegiate Strategic Prevention Framework Partnership for Success Initiative. The West Virginia CSPF PFS's goal is to prevent the onset and reduce the progression of substance misuse and its related problems among higher education students in Southern West Virginia. The federal grant was awarded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration to Marshall University's Center of Excellence for Recovery. We hope that with our project and this podcast, we can begin to cultivate a culture of prevention on college campuses across the state. We are student leaders who will support, enhance, and build the prevention infrastructure. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are only those of the hosts and the guests. They are not the views and opinions of SAMHSA, Marshall University Research Corporation, the West Virginia Collegiate Strategic Prevention Framework Partnership for Success, and or the Participating Institute of Higher Education. Intro music is by Soundroll and the title track is Feeling Home. Now, our host. Hi, my name is Carly Knuckles. My preferred pronouns are she, her, and I'm the student leader from WVU Tech. Today we'll be discussing prevention for students transitioning from foster to kinship care. Today my guest is Bree Taylor. Do you want to introduce yourself, Bree? Hello, my name is Bree Taylor. I am a neuroscience student at WVU, and my pronouns are she, her. Yes, and um, Bree is... um, or has been, and aged out of kinship care. Um, when, how, how, when did you get into kinship care? Um, well, I had like two separate situations. Realistically, it started all when I was two years old, two or three years old. And then I went into a different kinship at the age of 15. Yeah, and that's when I met Bree. Me and Bree mm-hmm. have been best friends since we were 15. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Since we were like 15. So I when I saw that we were doing this podcast episode, I knew that I would have to have her come talk. So I always have to do a stigma-free disclaimer. It's super important um, that we use stigma-free language when speaking in this podcast as we are all learning to use proper language. And we apologize if we use incorrect language and we'll try to correct ourselves as we go. So first, I'm just going to begin by defining the kinship care definition. So kinship, um, which is what Bree identifies with her um, situation, was an out-of-home arrangement for full-time care by relatives such as grandparents, uncles, aunts, tribe tribe members, godparents, or others who are not a child's parent but have a familial relationship with the child. And then the foster care definition, they may live with unrelated foster parents. Um, They can also refer to placement settings such as group homes, residential care facilities, emergency shelters, and supervised independent leaving. leaving. Um, It's important to discontinue the bias that foster care is not where juvenile delinquents go because I see that that's uh, misinformation like in the media that we often see. And um, it's just important to have that disclaimer. it's where children go when their parents cannot for, for, for many variety of reasons. Um, 
and for other people to care for them. So this arrangement can be informal or arranged through the courts or a social service in, um, agency. And the goal is reunification with the birth family if it is safe. That's super important. If safety is not possible, then um, reunification with the birth family is um, not option. But it may be changed to adoption when this is seen in the child's best interest. So, Brie, I have a question for you, my dear. How would you define your somewhat your experience as someone who spent you spent how many years in kinship cares from two to eighteen to so sixteen years? Um, how would you define your experience? Hmm. Well, <laughs> my experience was very interesting. Um, I left my mom when I was like two years old to live with my mom's mom. So my grandma and my grandpa and in the beginning it was very nice you know I went from a very bad living situation with my mom to a better situation so in my eyes as a kid I you know it was very good I didn't think much of it um until when I got older uh very different very different not the best experience Definitely uh, taught me a big lesson that just because people were put into your life, that doesn't mean you have to trust them, like, or you're supposed to trust them. Like, they still kind of have to earn that in that aspect. And um, I really enjoyed it. Was a good experience until it wasn't, you know, till, uh, you know, because I haven't, well, technically I did grow up with those people all the time, but People see turn out to how they're not, yeah. And then you transferred to a new home when you were 15. Yes, and then I was 15. I went to go live with my grandmother's sister, who was my great aunt. And that was that was such a wild transition because I went from a household at my grandparents where, you know, there wasn't a lot of rules or much or so, like, discipline in a sense, like, my brother got away with a lot, you know, and then I went to where my aunt is very, you know, she's very educated. She's very sophisticated, intimidating, and has a set of rules. And like, if it's her, if it's not her way, get out. Like, if it's not her way. She wouldn't disagree. If she were to hear this um, episode of the podcast, she'd be like, yeah, they're right. (laughs) She'd be like, yep, they're right. It was probably one of the hardest transitions I probably ever had to adapt to. And I had to adapt quick or I was just going to keep on getting in trouble, getting in trouble, you know. Mm-hmm. But it was definitely a much better situation than what I was in before, even though it was very hard transitioning. And I didn't really understand a lot. But my aunt mm-hmm. kind of understood that my grandparents didn't really teach me what she was trying to implement in my life so yeah and I feel like your aunt although um because she is intimidating they do have the bet yeah they do have the best like of your interest and I feel like that wasn't the case maybe with your um, first family from like our friendship care enough and like my aunt cares so much you know (laughs) different different yeah I will say like I like there was sometimes like because of that just because it was harder to transition and adapt 
in a new home that had like that was much more just well-rounded and coming from a home that was definitely not and was very dysfunctional mentally sometimes I like as I was like transitioning with my aunt I'd look back on that time I'm like dang like I really miss you know my grandparents house you know just periods of it because I had so much freedom you know it made me realize that like sometimes at that age you don't need that much freedom yeah and you were used to that for 13 years so literally, literally it was probably one of the hardest transitions but much needed a much needed lesson that serves me well now yeah and I feel like you've grown so much since we first met too regarding like from your discipline from the first family because I remember when we first met we were a little we were a little chaotic when we were 15 years old (laughs) yeah I was yeah I wanted to be crazy (laughs) (laughs) so now we're going to talk about the risk and perfect um, protective factors of fostered youth. Um, like we said in our introduction, we like to go about a strength-based approach when it comes to prevention. So protective factors are conditions or attributes of individuals, families, communities, or the larger society that when present promote well-being and reduce the risk for negative outcomes such as substance use. These factors may buffer the effect of risk exposure and the risk we'll talk about later. So according to Child Welfare Information Gateway, fostered youth have um, the following protective factors. So they have self-regulation skills. Um, This is also, it's important to put a disclaimer that they have these like in a healthy environment. So individually, they'll have self-regulation skills and these are just being able to control your emotions and your behaviors. Um, This can lead to like um, self-mastery, self-control and overall self-regulation just means like emotional intelligence. The next is relational skills. So being able to form positive bonds and connections with um, your family, your foster family, your kinship family, or as well like as other people. Um, And then academic school skills include um, school conduct, parenting competencies. So when they have a supervising and disciplining children um, and relational factors that promote bonds between these children and their parents, kinship parents, foster parents, if they have these the supervising and disciplining, disciplining that's a um, protective factor as well. Caring adults are a protective factor. Living with family members, aka kinship care, like we talked about with Bree. A positive school environment. A stable living situation. So um, a stable living unifi- um, situation is reunification with the birth family, ad- adoption, or placement with a guardian or just simply aging out of foster care or kinship care at a later age. And then supports for independently living. Words are hard today for me. I don't know why. (laughs) Um, Independent living. And these are programs associated with like educational attainment, such as like employment, housing, um, health, and a range of life skills. So that was a big, big, big list that I just gave. And it's awesome that there's a um, big list of protective factors that um, fostered youth can have. given the right environment. So Brie, do you identify with having like any of these protective factors against substance use while you're experiencing kinship care? And if so, which ones? Hmm. I would have to say, I kind of like will keep regard your list. It's okay. It's okay. Um, I'll just name self-regul- things, I guess. So like I self-regulation, think- like 
would that be considering like holding yourself back a bit like being protective of yourself you know like letting people yeah I mean like controlling your emotions and behaviors I feel like you gained that through your kinship yeah yeah I most definitely gained that um I did here I'll tell you what I did and you can like okay something yeah yeah yeah, absolutely um with my first kinship because just a big trust that I built up as a kid was just kind of just like taken away like that by that first kinship um it made me very kind of made me more emotionally intelligent because I noticed these patterns that like my family was portraying and like then when I saw it in other people and if I saw those patterns, I would kind of like, I'd be like, Ugh, like not let them in or like kind of just like put up my walls, you know, like use that to like protect myself and other and like another kinship. Yeah, you saw like manipulation in other people. I feel like that also goes in with like relational skills. Like you were yeah. able to identify these negative characteristics, yeah, which I feel like most read people very well. Because and then I, you were able to different like kinships where one person was like very negative and like evil whatever you know and I saw those tactics they would use and like certain words they would use to like manipulate and emotionally manipulate you know and then I went to my aunt who you know also manipulates in her own sense but different and obviously not as negatively impacting as the other kinship yeah your aunt just trying to manipulate you to clean the dishes (laughs) as opposed to the um, ladder yeah, 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 yeah. And I feel like that uh, that helped you um, form, like, better relationships. Like, you were living with your aunt for probably about, like, six months before me and you started being friends. Yeah. And, um, it and definitely. I don't think we would have ever became friends if not maybe, like, even though they, you were, we were still in the same area. You were 10 minutes away from me. Yeah, like, that's true. And, like, how we would have never, I don't know, I just feel like. I think, like, after everything happened that made me go into, like, my second kinship, it was, like, me realizing, like, how quick things can, like, just switch up and the matter of nothing. I think I craved, like, an emotional connection that was not family. So, like, now I've noticed, like, my whole life now is I go out and I find these really great friends like you, like, my college friends here – and, like, I considered those people, like, my family. Like, like yeah. my, I have such a close net of friend groups because that's, like, my chosen family, you know? like. And I feel like it's cute with you, too, because your family, like, you have different sectors. Like, as opposed to having, like, a biological, maternal, and paternal side, you have my, your childhood from, like, surrounding your first kinship. Then, like, people that you were close with, like, in high school and surrounding your second uh-huh. kinship. And when you went to college... Yeah, oh, so it's like you, you have like you have like three four families and it's cute yeah 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 no it's really nice considering like the situation yeah yeah that came out of it and I then got me yeah and then in like school I mean from what I remember you were pretty well behaved in school right I mean I was a talker I mean <laughs> but like you weren't like getting in fights or anything were you I mean <laughs> Not at Woodrow Wilson. I went to Woodrow Wilson for two years, but then when I went to Greater Beckley Christian School, that's when I was going through a bunch of, like, kinship issues, like, court dates. 
just a bunch yeah. of things that were on my stress. And I got to say, there were times where I was a menace <laughs> in high school <laughs> just because I was having a bad day. But definitely Maybe you didn't have a lot more <laughs> self-discipline. But, you know, everyone kind of let me off with it because they knew what I was going through. They're like, you know what? She's having a bad day. Like, leave her alone. Yeah. And then you talking earlier about um, how your aunt and your second kinship, they supervised you more. They were more disciplined um, yeah. and whatnot. That's a protective factor as well. So the parenting competen- competencies and then having um, a parent, an adult who cares with you for you, that's a protective factor as well as living with family members. Mm-hmm. And then, so, but you talked about um, Greater Beckley and Woodrow Wilson. That positive, was that school environment positive while you were in your kinship or no? Which one? Like Woodrow? I don't know. It don't matter. <laughs> uh, when I was in my second kinship, Woodrow was no longer like an option for me. Like there's just so much drama and family things going on that would come into the school at Woodrow and it just wasn't good for anyone. So then I went to Greater Beckley and Greater Beckley, honestly, 100% was amazing. Uh, 10 times better for me. I mean, I'm not very religious, um, but that school was a great school. The teachers there were very, gave me the nurturing and the love I needed that I didn't, you know, get at home and whatnot and everything like that. Yeah, that's awesome because, um, and so that's a protective factor as well as you go into Greater Beckley. And it's cool that you were able to recognize or in your second kinship family was able to recognize this was a bad environment for you and to put you in a better one to allow you to heal Mm -hmm. and um, become whole. And then another, let's see. So I feel like that's all. So you had a lot of protective factors. So, and I feel like um, hopefully, um, because we go against a straight, we go with a strength-based approach that, um, so hopefully a lot of people identify with those in kinship care. And then risk factors. This is like present or not present um, that increase someone for um, diseases, illness, mental um, illness, and especially substance use disorder are exposure to substances um, neonatally, um, physical, emotional, developmental, educational and behavioral problems rooted in child adversity and trauma, such as adverse child events um, and not having an educational advocate um, in their educational environment. Another um, risk factor is neglect, abuse, prenatal exposure, like we talked about, having multiple caregivers and not having a reliable one, as well as constant stress. Another one is um, hyperactivity, inattention, impulsive, impulsivity. That's a hard word to say. And then sleep and food issues are also another one. And uh, one thing that I found that was interesting is that there's um, working in nursing, I found um, research says that a number of psychiatric diagnoses prescribed were significantly greater for youth and um, children in foster care. And I wasn't sure if that was like stigma or mental health related, but I feel like it very well could be mental health related due to the trauma. But that was um, interesting because there's an increased risk of um, mental illness. But anyways... So I talked about a lot of risk factors and I just wanted to see if Bree, do you see a correlation with like these risk factors and substance use and how? 
Hmm. I would definitely say, so in my um, first kinship, I didn't see like a lot of like substance use uh, by like my grandparents, I guess. But like I did in the situations we were allowed to be in, you know, because we were kind of just able to go off, kind of do anything. And so there's obviously some substance use at, you know, a young age where there shouldn't have been. And then going into like my second kinship, uh, nothing like that was ever allowed. And I think in a way, because it was kind of allowed in my first one, I was kind of okay with like, just chilling out and not like doing anything and and nothing like that because none of it was ever allowed like I didn't have that sense of freedom to even think about it which I didn't even I didn't even care about it you know even when other kids were like going out or whatever yeah so having like for like you're saying um having a caregiver that is not enforcing disciplinary mm-hmm. is also a risk factor for this use. That's very true. I think for me, the most important one is the probably like trauma um, abuse and um, not having, not being in an um, environment where someone can grow, like being in a poor school, not having an educational advocate yeah. and all that. Yeah. Like in my first kinship, uh, school was not really valued necessarily like even when I lived with my grandparents like the person who was always calling down my back was my aunt and was like yeah (laughs) you want this money for these grades you know and she was always our education advocate so yeah I had that from afar but I didn't have it in the household like I did with the second kinship which made a huge difference like straight A's once I moved in with my aunt always straight A's nothing less than that or I would have no freedom (laughs) and um sometimes I hated it but in the end I and now that I look at it I ended up valuing it a lot more because I compare myself to my brother who wasn't really in the kinship with my aunt in the second kinship that I was in but was stayed with my grandmother essentially and he just never had an education advocate. And so we're in very different places of our lives, even mm-hmm. though he's two years older than me and I'm going to graduate and get a degree before he ever will, you know, mm-hmm. so it's very different looking at those two situations and comparing them. It's very interesting. To that see is it. true. Yeah. And you were given an opportunity in your second kinship to kind of learn how to begin to heal from, mm-hmm experiences in your first one yeah and as with your brother on the other hand I don't think that um, just from yeah mm -hmm. yeah and that that decreases your risk for um use as well um an important note is um it's important to emphasize protective factors and create an environment that fosters them due to the risk of risk factors prevalent in the fostered youth. Like we said, we go um, in this podcast, we go with the strength-based approach. We want to look at the bright side, you know, like even though we see all the negative um, things that may have happened, you have all these protective factors as well. And um, we like to think 
that we like to know because it is true that they buffer the risk factors. Okay, we're going to talk about specific barriers now. And um, when I was researching this, it was kind of difficult to find, but um, a lot of the barriers with um, fostered and kinship youth were um, like stigma and stereotyping. There's a lot of, I was looking at a lot of anecdotes, and I don't know if you can relate to any of this, but because um, there's a lot of anecdotes saying how people who are in foster care, so foster youth and kinship youth, that they were that they're just neglected, that automatically their parents use substances and couldn't and couldn't take care of them, or that they are troubled and they're never going to succeed, type of those type of stigma and stereotyping. Um, there's other specific barriers such as a lack of adequate primary education, so from elementary to high school, um, so not a ideal healthy environment, and then also lack of access to healthcare. And then the other specific barriers I saw were substance use, physical and mental health issues, homelessness, poverty, higher education framework that prevent foster youth from attending and obtaining a college degree. So there's a huge barrier for um, going to secondary education with those options, as well as um, the lack of primary education. So my question for you is, um, what stigma do you see with foster and kinship care and describe any personal experiences if you're comfortable? I think like a huge stigma that's given is like, just from like growing up, I saw like a lot of kids in foster care, um, and like a huge stigma that was around is that they never really wanted to admit that they're in foster care because it gave a sense that you were poor, you, you know, and, um, or like, I always hated being like, yeah, like I live with my aunt or I live with my grandparents because there's always the question that's like, why? And you're like, like oh, and then you don't want to have to explain yourself and all that because you don't owe that explanation. Yeah. Um, I'd say some stereotyping is that they're bad kids like they act out like the reason why they're in foster care is because their parents didn't want them like a like a lot of people will be like oh you're adopted because your family didn't want you you know just say like stupid remarks like that try to make people uh feel bad about themselves i was reading a lot of anecdotes too and it was saying like how like you said there's a there's a lack of pride in like the foster identity which is understandable because I mean you've a lot of there's a reason that you that you're not living with your family you know whether whether what that reason is and um you see people with their biological their birth mom and their dad yeah and you get jealous because I remember when me and you first started being friends you always talked about my parents yes I love your parents I that's why I always loved coming to your house because it was like I got the experience like from your parents you know like your parents like gave me a very nice loving experience you know that's I always think of you as their second daughter <laughs> yes yes literally and so so nice and then I also got the experience with your like siblings too you know because my siblings weren't like the people like weren't that good e- either you know so I think also 
when people go into like foster care and stuff like sometimes they don't get to choose like what siblings they have you know and I think that's also an interesting thing like a huge factor that goes into that too because sometimes you're just placed with a bunch of random people and and like also like different ages too mm-hmm. um like for example my partner his um his family fosters and their foster child was she was 10 and my boy my boyfriend he's 21 his sister is 17 so there's like a huge age range and so there wasn't a lot of like bonding that was able to happen there it was a healthy family for her of course and she was able to grow a lot while she was staying with them during that time but um they she ended up moving to a different family um because she said that she wanted more kids around her age yeah which is understandable yeah so prevention strategies specific to the population so these are actually really cool so when we talk about wanting to prevent substance use and other um, healthcare concerns with um, fostered youth. Um, We have a couple of prevention strategies specific to the population because when you you have to um, make something specific for each individual for it to work effectively, um, that way that their needs are acknowledged and um, all that. So I have one, two, three, four, five. So first I have strengthened families of origin. So this is meaning like keeping a child in or returning a child to an abusive family situation is never an option and preservation and reunification should not be pursued at all costs. They know and are acceptable only when a child's safety is well-being are ensured. So that goes back into saying that prevention for um, foster youth is, like we said, the goal of foster youth um, and families is to put them back with their um, family. But if that's, like I said earlier, if that's not safe for them, then that's not allowed. So, But that's a preventative measure as well. So, like, there needs to be a lot more um, support for those families, um, especially for individuals or parents that could be recovering from substance use um, or mental health um, struggles and whatnot. They might not be given that support in order to, they're just like, well, this family's better when they need to support that family of origin. Second is to support caseworkers. Of course, these are the individuals caring with these cases. Um, and they need, um, of course, trainings and supervision, but also the caseload. The caseload um, ratio is out of hand. And um, I see that just in the hospital. So um, like there's, whenever I was working on one floor, there was one social worker for the whole entire floor in almost there's about three-fourths of the cases were, um, three-fourths of the patients had a case and there was like 20 patients. And I was like, how on earth does she do that? Yeah. I literally Um, had a social worker and she never answered the phone because she was just so busy all the time. They, they're really underpaid and overworked. Yeah. For sure. Underpaid. Absolutely. And with social, with the case workers as well, they need to provide more holistic, flexible, family-friendly support, not only for those affected by the trauma, but just for those simply balancing to trying to struggle work and family. So trying to provide like more strategy, they, there needs to be more like holistic strategies for these um, parents and families in order to help with their trauma and for the um, balance. Then number one, two, three 
is educate the public to decrease stigma and common stereotyping. This is probably the main thing that I feel like I do is like, like talking about like language um, and to eliminate the bias and to educate and um, ensure that like, and teach people that the stereotypes are wrong because I feel like a lot of it is uneducated and implicit bias that they have from experiences or just media or something. And um, those need to be um, dismissed. And then as well, number four is therapy counseling to help you deal with unresolved grief and loss. And that is absolutely huge. As well as number five, guide children into building connections. So all these preventative measures focus on enhancing a protective factor that we talked about earlier. Um, So Brie. Which one of these prevention strategies do you see as most important? Would you like me to read them over for you? Uh, I'm looking at them right now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I decided to just pull up the note. <laughs> um, honestly, like, I think... <laughs> It would be educate, but also I'm a huge advocate for the therapy one uh-huh. just because a lot of reasons on why we have um, these idealistics about people and like just stereotype them and just don't care, like just don't kind of treat them like a human, like we just put them in a category, you know, um, I think that sometimes stems from like a deeper own self issue, you know. Like, uh-huh. like you're not being open-minded enough or accepting enough. And I think that should be educated and people should kind of, I don't know. Yeah. For me and my point of view, I was thinking those two as well. Um, of course, all five need to be implemented. But for me, yeah. with my mental health advocacy, for sure, therapy and counseling, just because yeah. that can hold people a lot from like the healing aspect and then yeah, educating and especially like educating them. And making just making it public to know that like kids in those situations to especially let like those kids in that situation know that like you're not alone. You know, everyone does this, but like these people say these things, you aren't these things, you know, and it'll start to make them feel more proud about it, which will make others, you know, and it's just like a whole domino effect, you know. Yeah, for sure. Um I love that. So next, we're going to start on the public eye of prevention um, specific to this population. And I was really excited when I found this resource. So now it's time for the public eye on prevention. Before we end each podcast, we're going to highlight a prevention partner, toolkit, podcast, website, or article. Prevention works best when we all work together and collaborate with other organizations. Thus, it's important to shed light on other prevention resources. Today's public eye on prevention is on thefostercoalition.com. So I was really, really excited when I found this website and I was looking for um, like toolkits initially when I was looking for a prevention um, tool for this, but I found this website and it was super awesome. And it was just a bunch of resources and links. You clicked a tab and it was for foster youth was one of the tab and you click resources and it was super organized. It was all in one place and it is directly for this population. And it had crisis hotlines, legal resources, homeless foster youth resources, healthcare resources, parents or expecting foster youth, free psychotherapy and healing help, and free educational resources online. 
And so when I looked at all that, I thought that was absolutely amazing because I feel that the education on what their um, foster youth are offered is not enough. And there's a lot out there for this specific population um, for them to succeed, um, given the right environment, right healing and whatnot. And so I was really excited when I found that. And again, it is the fostercoalition.com. So Brie, do you have anything that you want to say before we end this episode? Um, just thank you for having me on here. It's very cool. I'm very <laughs> proud of what you're doing. Oh. Um, it's good to talk about these things to get people to think because people will think nothing of it unless you bring it up. You know, it's not an issue till it's spoken about. So we're all about talking about it, you know. Me and you both. I love talking about it. Yeah, I I love telling people my issues and relating them to life. (laughs) And you have a a wonderful story, too, because you are becoming and growing into, every time I talk to Brie, because we'll go through periods. We're one of those friends that we go through periods, and we're like, we don't talk to each other for a month because we'll be so just scheduled. Caught up in our own life, yeah. Yeah, and because we live far away now, and um, but every time I talk to you, like I find like how much you've grown, and how much, I, and I see how much like I've grown with you. You know when you see yeah, friendships, yeah, yeah, you also. Like, oh, you yeah, like I feel like we grow together, and so like you have such a positive impact on me, and I know that you have it on everyone that you're with as well. Yeah, and you so. also have you're one of the most positive people in my life. Always, always have. <laughs> well, I think it's the company you keep. You know, you mm. kind of, we, we kind of just like enhance it. I bought one another. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Definitely. for sure. Um, so we want to thank all of our listeners for spending time with us today. We would also like to thank our guest, Bree Taylor, for mm. being a part of our podcast, for helping us cultivate a culture of prevention. Be sure to look out for our next episode of The Change We Speak in two weeks and make sure to follow all of our social media on Instagram, Facebook. It's c.spiff. PFS, um, and we'll see you soon. Thank you again for listening to our podcast. And please visit our Facebook page, Instagram page, and our website at www.muprevention.org to learn more about the CSPF PFS initiative and upcoming events and activities happening on your campus. Learn how you can help us to support, enhance, and build the collegiate prevention infrastructure. Again, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are only those of the hosts and guests. They are not the views and opinions of SAMHSA, Marshall University Research Corporation, the West Virginia Collegiate Strategic Prevention Framework Partnership for Success, and or the Participating Institute of Higher Education. Our track is by SoundRoll, and the title is Feeling Home. Thank you.